Welcome to this very last episode of season seven of Delving Into Dance. This season has been heard by thousands of people from all over the world, as we've explored the experiences of dance artists who question normative notions of society. This has included gender and sexuality, as well as a range of other things. We've heard from Chase Chauncey, Harper Walters, Philip Adams, Bruna Osalkovich, Luke George, Justin Shoulder, and Meta Ingevarsson. This episode is with Jane Desmond, a professor of anthropology who started her life as a dancer and choreographer. Her work is fascinating and has explored everything from dance and desire, sexuality, through to taxidermy and performing with animals. Before we get into this interview though, I have a request. We are currently raising funds to get all the episodes transcribed to make this rich archive available to deaf audiences and students. Every contribution is welcome. But back to normal programming. I interviewed Jane over the phone as we were having issues with Skype. And I started by asking, where did dance start? Well, one, of the, one part of that question is when did I decide to be a dancer? As, as a profession uh, versus taking dance lessons, which I started as a young person. I don't know if I was eight or 10 uh, at that age. I both started uh, taking music lessons and dance lessons. And at the time, what was available in my Washington, D.C. area was ballet lessons, um, which I took basically through high school uh, from, from those early years. But... It became clear to me uh, one summer, I was doing a summer program at the Washington Ballet School. It was probably around 13 or so, and I realized, oh, I'm going to college. Uh, My father was a college professor. There was no question that I was going to go to college, and I I understood that that was an either-or choice. And um, I think also at that time, I thought uh, ballet seemed very... um, uh, prescriptive, I guess, uh, to my 13-year-old view. So I continued dancing, but, um, you know, sort of turned away from uh, the the notion of attempting a a ballet career uh, early in my teens. And uh, then when I got to uh, Brown University, I wanted to continue to dance, but they didn't actually have advanced enough ballet for me, so I luckily encountered modern dance. And that was a mental explosion. I realized dancing is really about time and space and energy, and you can think with dancing. And um, and that's when I began um, choreographing as as well. So that was another turning point. Uh, that's a really then, that's an I'm interesting sorry? that um, turning point is quite interesting because a lot of people who I guess come out of more of a ballet background or training regime, discover modern dance or contemporary dance, and it it reveals something new. And a lot of people talk about that being uh, like a light switch turned on. Or... Yes, that makes a lot, of, a lot of sense to me. And, you know, there was some resistance. I thought, why aren't they pointing their toes? What's wrong with these people? <laughs> um but once I, I began to get a little experience um, in in the forms, I was fortunate to have a wonderful teacher at Brown, Julie Strandberg, whose uh, sister was Carolyn Adams, Adams in the Paul Taylor Company, um, and she gave us 
tremendous opportunities and encouraged uh, encouraged me to explore choreography. And a number number of my peers from that time uh, also went on and, and pursued professional modern dance careers. But there was another turning point in college, and that was when I was a junior, and I was I had I had decided to put together my own major, which was a possibility at Brown at that time. A very exciting time to be at Brown, and I was going to do the aesthetics of dance, a sort of philosophy in dance, and I had a I had a music. Uh, electronic music composition teacher. I was in the electronic music studio working. Um, and I said, gee, I'm thinking of doing this. And he said, well, Jane, why don't you just be a dancer? Why don't you just dance? And um, I thought about that, and I realized dancing was something I needed to do. If I wanted to do it professionally, I needed to do it younger, and that my passions for composition and uh, all sorts of other things, philosophy, could, could still be there. So I remember that conversation at a Karl Heinz Stockhausen concert that our class had gone to. And it's funny now, being a professor, you think of those conversations you have and you wonder if this will be the one that someone will really take so much from. It's such a pragmatic decision in many ways to decide that if I'm going to dance, I've got to do it now. Yeah, it sort of didn't feel pragmatic, but I, I guess it was. I also was trying to decide if I would do... Uh, dance ethnology because I've been very taken with music uh, ethnog- ethnography and ethnology world music uh, and that sort of stunned me with my ignorance of the rest of the world I've never forgotten that impact so I was kind of looking at UCLA's program uh, and I was looking at Sarah Lawrence and I finally decided I wanted to try and be a, a dancer and a choreographer and that's that was another one of those turning points. Okay, I'm going to try and do this. And what was that um, period of time where you were, you know, practicing as a dancer and choreographer? Do you want to talk a little bit about that period of your life? Yeah, so I guess I started at uh, Sarah Lawrence in 73 to 75. I did my MFA there. And it was a very tiny program. There were six people in it. And um, my professor, lead professor was Bessie Schoenberg. And that was the the last class that she was going to teach there. So that was an extraordinary opportunity to study with, uh, to study composition with her. Um, And that was, uh, I I don't know, by that, by the time I got to Sarah Lawrence, I, I already had this drive that I wanted to make dances. Of course, I wanted to dance, but even more than that, it wasn't my dream to join someone else's company. It was my my dream to to make make work and um, and to be able to think about making making work. So Sarah Lawrence was a was a great joy during that time. I was very very fortunate to be there. Yeah, amazing. And what was the transition? into kind of academia and that process because you've had this career after dancing which has been in so many different areas of uh, research ideas that whole space so what was that process that was that was a long and hard one 
when I finished that MFA, I was very fortunate. I got a job uh, on the theater faculty at Cornell. So that was my first job. And um, it, in some ways, it was a, a marvelous fit because I, I realized that I really liked the intellectual setting of being at a major university, but I wanted to be a, a dancer. And there are also downsides to that, as you know. Um, at least in the U.S., uh, a lot of times the arts are on the sort of bottom of the ladder of respectability and funding and possibility in in uh, the U.S. Academy. So it has had its pros and cons. Uh, but I worked there for about five years and produced work with uh, wonderful local musicians and videographers and. Then did some, uh, quit that job to do a little freelancing in New York, and then realized I actually sort of missed the, I missed a university setting. I missed those other conversations that I could have. Um, and then I was fortunate to get the job uh, teaching in the dance program at Duke, which I did for about 10 years. So it, it was in my mid-30s, um, like for so many people, that your body starts to fall apart and I had to make a decision. Did I want to continue to make dances if I couldn't make them on my own body? Or did I want to see if there was anything else that could be possibly as, as engaging as, as dance? And, and I, couldn't, I couldn't think of very many things. And I know this has got to be the same for many, many people who have gone through this. What, what else can ex- engage your heart and your head, your brain, your body, um, your expressive self, your politics in the way that dancing can? Um, so first I looked at films. I thought, oh, well, I liked you know, collaborating with videographers. I liked editing video. Maybe I'd like to make a film. Um, And as I investigated that, I discovered film theory, which gave me a language for talking about dance um, in a way I didn't have before. And in the end, I decided if I couldn't have that freedom in the studio, if my body was no longer able to give me that freedom in the studio, I would try... um, I would try to find uh, an equal passion, and that led me to American Studies. Yeah, amazing. And were there things from dance that, I guess, supported that new journey? I mean, they seem they seem so different in many ways or two different specific areas. Yeah, you know, we always have that um, stereotype that dancers can't think and thinkers can't dance. And, um, you know, so many people have totally disproved that um, but that that is a legacy and it was was very unusual to enter a PhD program at Yale um, and be a, having been a choreographer and coming back to um, academic study I guess for me at that point I was 35 it, it was just it was just thrilling I mean I I knew that I didn't know so many things and um, that sort of that ignorance in some ways was was quite freeing Um, I was able to explore a lot of things 
in film theory and literary criticism, in comparative literature, in, in art history, all sorts of things that um, I knew I was not expert in. Um, so it was a really, really thrilling time to be there. But I also felt that when I was there, I had to make a bargain with myself that I would not dance. I would not go to the local studio. I would not meet up with local choreographers. I would almost pretend that I had never been a dancer because I could not have done that program in a sense with one hand behind my back and still have my heart in the studio. So I, I kind of had to go cold turkey then. Um, and I did my coursework there and then uh, returned to my job at Duke and integrated that academic work into new courses that they let me develop. I was very fortunate. So I could teach dance and critical theory in the morning and choreography in the afternoon um, and spend my evenings in the library. So that transition time actually took about a, a decade and a lot of that was not just the training a lot of it was the emotional transition of beginning to see myself as a scholar and and no longer as a performer but also a scholar that thinks through their body or thinks through i guess that background in dance as well and that embodied practice it was imperative Really, absolutely imperative. And I know for many people at that time, Susan Foster uh, among them, um, and Cooper Albright, uh, several of us uh, in our 30s were making this transition into academia in some ways and trying to figure out what a, a dance studies might look like uh, in that cultural studies landscape. And uh, most of us uh, came from the studio. And I think that informed a lot of our, our early uh, theorization. But even more than that, and I thought about this with your, your questions you asked, I think that it has, it has, it continues to shape everything I do. And in some ways, it's a weird thing. People say, well, you're a dance scholar, but why are you writing about taxidermy? You know, um, but, but for me, the question began to be reframed more and more broadly about how does embodiment uh, matter in the world and eventually across the species barrier on that. But but this this notion of being an embodied being in a social uh, a social world is is one that uh, is deeply embedded in dance for me and that that has just never gone away. Well, so much of your work has kind of used, I guess, some of those principles of dance and embodiment in understanding both society, individuals, different types of performance um, across into animal species, human species, you know, across the, across the board. What is it about, I guess, dance that allows for that? If somebody's not a dancer, how do you explain what those tools are or those experiences that you can then bring to those more theoretical spaces, I guess. I think as dancers, we, we develop the capacity to see in great detail. And, you know, we, we might have the skill of lava notation as a sort of 
technical rendering of, of movement, or as choreographers or, or dancers, we might simply be able to see uh, the differences in a walk or the differences in uh, how people position themselves uh, in space in Italy versus in Azerbaijan and, and so on. Um, and those tools which we take off the stage are ones um, that most people don't don't have. We don't have a lot of training for how to look carefully at how bodies are mobilized in space. We, we have it in dance, but we don't have it in, say, sociology or comparative literature and, and, and so forth. And I think those, I think that ability to see and articulate relationality um, at the embodied level of practice is is a crucial skill and one that we as dancers bring to whatever it is we're going to investigate, whatever the phenomenon may be. And certainly when I teach grad students, grad seminars in, in performance studies, and we're looking at not only, you know, on the stage, we're looking at the practices of everyday life. Uh, that is something I try to make available to them. Can you give some examples, I guess, within your work or within th things that you've explored or examined where that dance aspect is uh, is very present? Yes, I think I can give two quick examples. One is from uh, the first book, now um, Staging Tourism, um, from Waikiki to SeaWorld, when I began to write about the staging of animal performance, I could have written about the ethics about it, I could have written about lot the institutional institutionalization of it, but I wanted to look at the specific choreography between the whale movement uh, in these whale shows and the trainers and, and how they are. I said, well, what if I look at this as the choreography of a duet? It's a bi-species duet. And what are the ideologies that are then literalized in the choreography of these uh, cross um, animal and human duets? So that, that in some ways was a very obvious way to go um, to deconstruct their construction of what I saw as a, a bi-species uh, duet, and then to use that to ask what is the cultural work that this particular framing of a, a physical relationship implies. And more recently, um, now, and I'm sort of skipping over, you know, work that I that I wrote, uh, especially about dancing. But in my current work now, I'm 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 looking at the practice of veterinary medicine. And one of the questions I'm trying to figure out how to frame as a research question is, what is the role of touch? What is the role of positioning in a physical exam when you're doing an exam on a dog or maybe a snake who's not, not staying still? And uh, how do you understand the interior of another being's body through your touch, almost like a, a partnering? there so that's a very current example and again sort of skipping over some of the more explicitly you know obviously dance parts um to say wow what if i looked at this as partnering How, what what can that reveal to me about this practice of medicine yeah how cool
Um, some of those parts you have skipped over uh, were, I guess, an interest in dance, gender and sexuality. And you've written that, you know, dance history ought to kind of consider the history of sexuality. Um, why is it important in dance to consider the role of sexuality? Well, I was thinking, I was thinking back to when I did uh, the book Dancing Desires uh, this morning, thinking about the phone call, and the reason I, the reason I did that book was, um, I thought it was a conversation that we should be having nationally, and there were a few people sort of exploring it in one-on-one types of, of articles, but there was no sort of central clearing to say what is the role of sexuality in in uh, a variety of dance practices? How can we understand that? How can that drive dance studies forward? So my goal there, even though I wasn't writing a lot about sexuality and dance per se, um, was to make a commitment to create that the conditions for that um, conversation. And and I think as we look now and we look at, uh, you know, this wonderful new uh, new book that, that came out by Claire Croft, Queer Dance, thinking, wow, why did it take so long for another, another you know, substantial collection on these issues? Why, why haven't there been like a million books in between Dancing Desires and, and, and Queer Dance? And of course there have, have been some, uh, Ramon Rivera Severa's work and, and, and so on. Um, but I think there's a lot to say in part because when we look at the practice of dancing, we're also looking at people dancing. You could set aside Nikolai and some other folks for a while that sort of mask the body in some ways, but generally we're looking at dancing bodies that the audience will perceive as often as gendered, uh, possibly as raced, um, possibly as the dimension of, of national origin, social class, and so forth. And those are dimensions that I think are crucial for the act of interpretation. And as I moved uh, into American studies, I became very interested in sort of reader response theory and how we understand the production of meaning, not just the production of text, but the act of reception and the production of meaning. And for dance, because we, we see embodied individuals that at the very least we determine uh, probably to fit into categories called male and female, we, we bring a social matrix of interpretation already to what we see. So I think that the gender and sexuality questions become key. And what can we learn from making that more visible or for drawing attention to those different dynamics of bodies in space, including, I guess, race and class? What's of particular interest to me, uh, and I th- was thinking about this too, about the moment when I realised that I didn't solely want to write about a dance as a text that had a beginning and an end, uh, but as a social phenomenon of practice. That was a light bulb moment for me because as a choreographer, I was very invested in 
uh, articulating what was going on uh, in a particular dance, let's say a, a hula performance in, in Hawaii, um, on the stage. And then I realized I needed to look beyond the stage to this entire broader um, complex of the conditions of possibility of that dancing. And I think for me, the largest question is, what is the cultural work that dance is doing in any any particular moment or or time? And that that means we have to look at whoever is dancing and whoever is seeing that dance. And then again, what are the acts of interpretation that are going on? So even if we're looking at a, a sort of um, elite high art uh, form like ballet, what really interests me beyond a particular aesthetic pleasure I might get in um, expertise of partnering or, or, or so on is why is this why why this now and who cares about it and what difference does it make in their lives so those those are broadly social questions and I guess these questions also and these marks of time change and shift and I think obviously ideas around sexuality gender queer sexuality non-normative you know sexualities and genders shift um, as societies kind of understand them and the politics become more more at this point of time I guess more obvious or more openly discussed what I guess I'm trying to make this a, a better question but I guess Dance has not always been a progressive space in a lot of the main stage companies, but there seems to be a shift in regards to gender and there seems to be a shift in regards to sexuality. And these spaces are now kind of becoming, they're reflecting something quite different than they would have maybe 30 years ago. Yes. When we look at someone like uh, Justin Peck's work with the New York City Ballet now, um, and we think back to Mark Morris's um, version of the Nutcracker, which I saw when it opened at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. I happened to be living in New York uh, at that time, and I remember going to see that. I mean, that was stunning. Um, sort of cross-gender casting that he did, the sort of... Um, gay quotations and, and, and so forth. Uh, and one question is, well, why did it take, you know, so long to get from The Hard Nut by Mark Morris to Justin Peck's um, same-sex partnering in his 2017 subway dance, and you know, which I think he called The Times, The Times are, are, are Racing. You know, why is that still worthy of commentary in The New York Times? Like, oh, my goodness male partnering um and then you see somebody like matthew bourne who kind of went the other right. way having this incredibly right. progressive work and then increasingly replicating heterosexual narratives or norms <laughs> on stage or denying the possibility of homosexual desire within those spaces or queer desire within those spaces Right. And this, I think, you know, if we were going to have an afternoon to sit down over coffee and and talk about this and look back at the hard nut and look at Matthew Bourne and look at these moments that sort of stand out um, as 
as plotting plotting differences we'd we also want to come back to this question who is watching this work and how does it have meaning for them to whom is this work addressed and you know in some ways we're we're talking now about um so-called elite art uh concert dance and we would want to know who's who's in those audiences and what about placing that in the same space and time, let's say New York, with other types of dance, with dance on the street, with dance in the clubs, what's going on? Um, so the question of, again, of either audience and participants, if we look at like club, club dancing or social dancing, to me, again, comes back to this, what, is, what does this practice mean, whether it's just in Peck on, you know, at Lincoln Center, or it's in a, a club on the Lower East Side, what does it mean for the people who are watching and making it? And what are, what are the sort of allowable range of expressivity and experimentation or articulation of uh, sort of speculative futures that are allowable in that space? Those, those would be driving questions for me. Well, it makes me think, um, you know, a few weeks ago, and I wrote this in the email, but I was at Manchester Pride, and it was right. that reminder that the body is a site of protest and can be a performative counter-narrative. I'm not a professional dancer, but the way I can use my body within space with other people um, can become incredibly powerful, and that collective... Uh, collective union of bodies in that moment with music uh, reads in very different ways and is incredibly political in some respects. Yes, I totally agree. And I also went to our local pride here. Champaign-Urbana is a, is a sort of micro-urban area of maybe 100,000 people. So there was a, a downtown parade and I was thinking back to early parades, um, you know, in the 1960s, let's say late 60s, early 70s, um, where drag queens in San Francisco might have been in, in the front of the parade. And I was looking at the sort of <laughs> um, the labor unions, the credit unions, the banks who were all in the gay pride parade here. Mm. Um and you know maybe tossing some some beads as if we were in new orleans and and, and so on and a few people sort of dressed up with um over the top um a little bit more reference to um you know gay performance style you might you might say um i thought how do i feel about this on the one hand I'm sort of glad the local credit union is saying we want gay business. Uh, we recognize you as a, as a, um, uh, a citizen and in the economy. And we want to cater to you. On the other hand, um, thinking back to the sort of expressivity of a sort of a declarative difference which is what we saw in a lot of those uh, gay pride parades earlier on. Uh, that difference was really, really not there now. And often and that, these floats are also employing models or professional people who are paid for the day to be right. to be in these spaces. I had a I had a similar moment at Manchester Pride watching 
the commercial floats and most of them you're like yeah okay I can see see a place but there was one float that was um, from the company Serco. Now Serco in Australia is responsible for running detention centres which lock up gay people who are fleeing persecution and here they are marching in the other side of the world in a pride parade and you just think well, that, that maybe is part of the, the work and the possibility of contribution that an academic can do or, uh, you know, a thinker like yourself can do to make visible those things that they just get, you know, just smoothed over with that nice float in the Gay Pride Parade. Um, but if we don't unpack again this, what are the conditions of possibility that brought them into the parade and that masked their other role halfway around the world? Uh, how do we articulate that? How do we bring that into public discourse? Is I think part of the work that we can do um, as scholars, and increasingly, of course, that's that's risky work when we think about the um, uh, the trolling online and 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 so forth, but. Um, I think making those con- those connections visible uh, or articulating this this shift over time is is part of the work we can do. Mm. Um, moving on, maybe a little bit. I'm really interested um, in regards to the body and talking about you've already kind of touched on some of them, but the other arenas in which you've explored the body, including non-humans, taxidermy. Um, what are the differences in the display and the presentation of what, I guess, those moving objects are, one, and also how does dance inform your curiosity, I guess? You know, when I I first began writing about uh, taxidermy, uh, um, it was one of these moments where something is very compelling to you and you you don't really know why, and you push it away, and you say, well, that's ridiculous. I'm certainly not going to write an article about taxidermy. Um, but I began to then look at the history of display of these uh, dead animals in natural history museums and sort of the ideologies of that uh, capture and display and so forth. A lot of work has now been done on that. But for me, uh, one of my avenues in particularly was how is that body posed? I didn't want to just say, well, there's, you know, here's the bobcat in this last display case from 1902. I wanted to know what were the conventions of display? Did they have a, a paw up? Was was the mouth open? Were, was this animal posed as if uh, he or she was about to leap out of the um, glass container? What was the notion of, of, uh, of this being as it was posed in arrested movement? Um, so for me, you know, that sort of level of deep detail of reading each individual uh, taxidermy specimen, as they say, um, was directly out of a dance um, point of view. And I, when I would make notes, you know, I would draw, I would be in these museums and I would, would draw a version of this so that I could later go home and say, well, where was the, where was the weight? Was it on the back right foot? Was, was this condensed muscle giving us the impression of an animal about to spring? How did the taxidermist actually... Um, 
imply a future liveness in a dead body through the literal uh, choreography of that body in the display case. And so how do you go about collecting data for this kind of research? I've, you know, I've read some of your things and you have um, undertaken a range of what would uh, be considered out-of-the-box kind of um, explorations or observations. Can you talk to me kind of about how you go collecting data and some of the weird things you've <laughs> participated or witnessed? I already said it was weird. <laughs> I mean, that's my framing. Unique. Let's use unique. <laughs> oh, that's so much better. That is so much better. Um, I would say two things. One is that as, I, as I've moved across a number of uh, disciplines in my work from the performing arts then into the humanities and now now actually I have an appointment in the social sciences as the only non-anthropologist in the department of anthropology um, based on the fact that I, I began to do a lot of field work which I felt was necessary to answer some of the questions that intrigued me I, I find that um, I'm constantly doing my homework the same way that as as dance studies was developing in the 90s, um, some people in other disciplines would say, oh, dance, that's cool. I think I'll learn about dance. But they would know nothing about dancing, talk to no dancers, not read anything that was written about dance, and, and sort of say, oh, this is cool. I'll just look at dancing. Um, so I always want to make sure that I'm trying to do the the necessary intellectual homework to understand the ways that a, um, an intellectual community is framing certain issues. And I may not agree with that. I may want to springboard from that. But part of this in, involves a constant, constant uh, reading and disciplines uh, outside my own. And I, and I think that that is an important act of um, respect to uh, disciplines um, as we move across them and try and do interdisciplinary work. So that's the first thing. Um, and the second thing is then this question about what counts as evidence. Um, what counts as evidence is so different, in, so different in different fields. That's another thing to sort of learn. How do you how do you measure something in a field? Do you do you care about that measure? Do you do you actually count the number of things? For for example. Uh, how do you articulate experiential um, evidence? So it really depends uh, for me on what the question is that I'm trying to um, trying to understand. For example, when at the very beginning of uh, displaying death and animating life, I, I wanted to start with a moment from my field work that had that had disturbed me that I felt had put me at the edge of my ethical comfort. Um, and that was this, um, I was uh, accompanying uh, some veterans who were conducting um, work at a farm and gathering semen from bulls to test their health and uh, also, also to test their comfort level with these types of um, procedures. And as participant observation would have it, you know, one actually does these um, 
procedures to the extent that is safe for the animal and, and for the humans. And this intimacy, this disturbing intimacy um, with a bull was something that I, I felt I wanted to articulate in part because I had the tools to articulate it. I could talk about uh, the motions that the bull was making. I could talk about the, the feel of my hand um, on this animal and to make that vivid for someone else who also then can come to that moment and say, how do I feel about this um, production animal research or, wh- or whatever the question was at, the, at, that, at that farm. So in a way, I'm saying that part of what counts for evidence uh, varies with the particular situation and, and the question that one is asking. And in that case, I wanted to draw on my abilities to articulate physical experience um, as a way of communicating to others what I felt was a moment of ethical challenge. Mm. It is it, That is one of the things that I would have put in the more unique teetering on weird um, categories because it, it's an experience that is so outside of my own realm. Um, you know, well, pre- and outside of... Outside of anyone in the dance realm, but but pretty normal for anyone in the production medicine realm. Yeah, exactly. uh, You know, that's like the ability of coming into another world, whether it's into the world of a dance a a dance studio that's in uh, rehearsal, or whether it's doing you know observation at a dance club, or whether it's doing observation in a uh, veterinary clinic that's collecting. Bull semen. Um, these are. This is a sort of extraordinary uh, privilege. I feel uh, of field work when people um, invite or allow you into the daily practice of their worlds, whether it's their social worlds or their work worlds. And what what are you exploring at the moment? Well, at the moment, I'm, I'm working on. Three things. Uh, I'm writing the afterword for a special issue of, that explores um, taxidermy, both historical and as a creative art form. I'm about to write the um, afterword for a special issue of DRJ on a uh, dance research journal on uh, sort of contingent uh, labor in dance and the effect that has on the notion of what working and making work is and I am uh, working on a longer term project called Medicine Across the Species Lines where I'm trying to understand how the practice of medicine uh, for animals is similar to or different from the practice of human medicine oh yeah wow that's yeah well (laughs) that sounds really interesting well, and the thing that ties them all together, you know, as we've been talking about, in each case is there are these um, unique bodily practices, whether it's making work in a studio or um, 
whether it's uh, an artist putting together different uh, dead animal bodies into a sort of speculative taxidermy vision of a future, um, or um, this practice in, in the animal clinics of, of touch and the production of knowledge across that species boundary of two very different types of bodies. So it, in some ways for me, um, while it might seem unusual to someone else to be working on all these at the same time, kind of comes right back to that centrality of embodiment as something that drives the questions that really appeal to me. Yeah. We, um, before I started recording, we were talking about our weeks and um, kind of the state of the world. It seems like we're living in this time at the moment where arts, academia, journalism, science and other central pillars of a democratic society are being questioned um, and blatantly disregarded or attacked by political leaders um, across the world, not just in the States. Um, how do we protect and defend these aspects of society and does dance and art play a role in that space? Yes, you, you do sound a little bit underwater, but I heard you. Do I sound okay to you? Yeah, you sound fine. Okay. Um, you know, back to the gay, gay Pride Parade, I think it's, it's uh, important, crucial, and hopefully effective to literally put bodies in the streets. And for all we can do on social media and um, the spreading of the word very fast and the importance of uh, iPhone video documentation and all these things, you know, when we had all of those hundreds of thousands of men and women right after the Trump uh, election in the pink pussy hats in Washington, D.C. and in um, cities throughout the U.S. and other sites abroad, that visual, that power of so many people physically saying no, physically coming together, um, I think that is really powerful, even in this time of, um, you know, I'll just put it on Facebook and I'll, I'll press the like thing and so forth. So to the extent that we can be physically present, to the extent that the arts... Um, Thinking back to the AIDS protests and uh, Julia Messina and the big puppets and, you know, all the creative things that we can bring to make visible um, the act of saying no, I think that's crucial. And I think we should, um, you know, I think we should use our, our tremendous artistic um, abilities to to do that, and, and I also think it's exhausting. It seems to be one thing after another. There's never closure. There's always another protest. Um, it's like a part-time job. But I think that is the situation we're in, and I think the um, the emotional impact both through um, spoken word, through music, through uh, dance, through visual productions, um, as part of that, putting your body in the public space and saying no, I think that's crucial now, and I think I think that has, for many of us, become becomes part of our our daily work and such important work. Yeah, and such exhausting work. I mean, already you know the artists 
or are either unfunded or underfunded or and so forth. But I think the stakes are quite high, and I think the possibility that art brings of you know, all the work we do in academia now talking about affect, the role of affect. Well, affect moves people to action. And um, as artists, we are capable of eliciting uh, that affect, those emotional responses that, that then will drive people to action. And um, I, I'm grateful that we have those abilities. Thanks for listening. You'll find a list of links and episode notes at delvingintodance.com. This has been such a wonderful season exploring the power of dance to challenge the status quo. It's been an honour hearing from such a diverse range of individuals. It's also been wonderful to get your feedback. And as always, tweet, Facebook shares and reviews are always appreciated. Stay tuned for a new season starting next week. Delving Into Dance acknowledges the support of you, the listeners, especially those people who have been contributing to the latest campaign. We also acknowledge the support of the Victorian government through Creative Victoria. Until next time, go out there and dance.